Chapter 5, Part 2 of The Star of Gettysburg. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michael Packard. The Star of Gettysburg by Joseph A. Altscheller. Chapter 5 Fredericksburg. Part 2 The leader of the Army of the Potomac was watching from the other side of the Rappahannock with a terrible eagerness. The man who had not wished the command of the splendid Union Army, who had deemed himself unequal to the task, was now proving the correctness of his own intuitions. He had taken up his headquarters in a fine colonial residence on one of the highest points on the bank. He was surrounded there by numerous artillery, and the officers of his staff crowded the porches, many of them already sad of heart, although they would not let their faces show it. But Burnside, now that his men had forced the river in such a daring fashion, began to glow with hope. Such magnificent troops as he had, having crossed the deep tidal Rappahannock in the face of an able and daring foe, were bound to win. He swept every point of the field with his glasses, and from his elevated position he and his officers could see what the troops in the plain below could not see, the long lines of the Confederates waiting in the trenches or in the woods, their cannon posted at frequent intervals. But Burnside hoped. Who would not have hoped with such troops as his? Never did an army, and with full knowledge of it, too, advance more boldly to a superhuman task. He saw the gallant advance of the Pennsylvanians, and he saw them drive off Pelham. Hope swelled into confidence. With an anxiety beyond describing, he watched the further advance of Meade and his Pennsylvanians. Stonewall Jackson also was watching from his convenient hill, and his small staff, mostly of very young men, clustered close behind him. Jackson no longer used his glasses, as Burnside was doing. Meade and his Pennsylvanians were coming close to him now. The great Union batteries on Stafford Heights must soon cease firing or the shells and shot would be crashing into the blue ranks. It can't be much longer, said Harry. No, not much longer, said Dalton. We'll unmask mighty soon. How far away would you say they are now, Harry? About a thousand yards, over half a mile. Then I'll say that when they come within half a mile, old Jack will give the word to the artillery to loosen up. Harry and George, in their intense absorption, had forgotten about the other parts of the line. In their minds, for the present at least, Jackson was fighting the battle alone. Longstreet was forgotten, and even Lee, for a space, remained unremembered. They were staring at the brigades which were coming on so gallantly when the jaws of death were already opened so wide to receive them. They're at the half-mile, said Dalton, who had a wonderful eye for distance. And still old Jack does not give the word. The closer the better, said Harry. Glancing up and down the lines, he saw the men bending over their guns and the riflemen in line after line rising slowly to their feet and looking to their arms. 
in spite of himself, in spite of all the hard usage of war through which he had been. Harry shuddered. He did not hate any of those men out there who were coming towards them so boldly. No. They were not in all the brigades, nor in all the Union Army, nor in all the North a single person whom he wished to hurt. Yet he knew that he would soon fight against them with all the weapons and all the power he could gather. Eight hundred yards, said Dalton. Fire! was the word that ran like an electric blaze along the whole southern front, and Jackson's fifty cannon, suddenly pushing forward from the forest, poured a storm of steel upon the devoted Pennsylvanians. Harry felt the earth rocking beneath him, and his ears were stunned by the roaring and crashing of the cannon all around him. The Union officers on the porches of the colonial mansion across the river saw that terrible blaze leap from the Confederate line, and their hearts sank within them like lead. Alarmed as they had been before, they were in consternation now. Some had said that Jackson was not there, that it was merely a detachment guarding the woods. But now they knew their mistake. Harry and Dalton stayed close to their general. Shells and shot from the battery below on the plain were crashing along the trees. But like those of the great guns on Statford Heights, they passed mostly over their heads. The two youths at the moment had little to do but watch the battle. The southern riflemen crept forward in the woods, and now their bullets in sheets were crashing into the hostile ranks. The Union division commander hurried up reinforcements, and the Pennsylvanians, despite their frightful losses and shattered ranks, still held fast. But the southern batteries never ceased for a moment to pour upon them a storm of death. With red battle before him, and the fever in his blood running high, Harry now forgot all about wounds and death. He had eye and thought only for the tremendous panorama passing before him, where everything was clear, invisible, as if it were an act in some old Roman circus, magnified manifold. Then came a message from Jackson to hurry to the left with an order for a brigadier who lay next to Longstreet. As he ran through the trees, he heard now the roar of the battle in the center, where stalwart Longstreet was holding Marie's Hill and the adjacent heights. A mighty Union division was attacking there, and out of the south from the embers of Fredericksburg came another great division in column after column. Harry heard the fire of Jackson slackening behind him, and he knew it was because Meade had been stopped or was retreating. And he stayed a little with the brigadier to see how Longstreet received the enemy. The hill and all the ridges about it seemed to be one red blaze. And every few minutes the triumphant rebel yell, something like an Indian war whoop, but poured from thirty thousand throats swelled above the roar of the cannon and the crash of the rifles and made Harry's pulses beat so hard that he felt absolute physical pain. He hurried to Jackson, where the battle, which had died for a small space, was swelling again, 
as the Pennsylvanians were compelled to draw back, leaving the ground covered with their dead. The Union batteries on Stafford Heights reopened, firing again over the heads of the men in blue. The southern batteries, weaker and less numerous, replied with all their energy. A far-flung shot from their greatest gun at the extreme southern end of the line killed the brave Union General Bayard as he was sitting under a tree watching his troops. Gregg, one of the best of the southern generals, was mortally wounded. A great body of the Pennsylvanians, charging again, reached the shelter of the woods and burst through the southern line. At another point, Hancock, always cool and brilliant on the field of battle, rallied shattered brigades and led them forward in person to new attacks. Hooker, who had shown such courage at Antietam, equally brave on this occasion, rushed forward with his men at another point. Franklin, Sumner, Doubleday, and many other of the best Union generals showed themselves reckless of death, cheering on their men, galloping up and down the lines when they were mounted, and waving their swords aloft after their horses were killed, but always leading. The Pennsylvanians, who had cut into the southern line, were attacked in flank, but they held on to their positions. Jackson did not yet know of Meade's success. He still stood on Prospect Hill with his staff, which Harry had rejoined. The forest and vast clouds of smoke hid from his view the battle, save in his front. Harry saw a messenger coming at a gallop toward the summit of the hill, and he knew by his pale face and bloodshot eyes that he brought bad news. Jackson turned towards the messenger, expectant but calm. "'What is it?' he asked. "'The enemy has broken through General Archer's division, and he directed me to say to you that unless help is sent, both his position and that of General Gregg will be lost.' Jackson showed no excitement. His calm and composure in the face of disaster always inspired his men with fresh courage. "'Ride back to General Archer,' he said, "'and tell him that the division of Early "'and the Stonewall Brigade are coming at once.' "'He turned his horse as if he would go with the relief, "'but in a moment he checked himself, "'put his field-glasses back to his eyes, "'and continued to watch heavy masses of the enemy "'who were coming up in another quarter. "'Harry did not see what happened when Early and Tolliver who now led the Stonewall Brigade, fell upon the Pennsylvanians. But the Invincibles were in the charge, and St. Clair told him about it afterward. The Union men had penetrated so far that they were entangled in the forest, in thickets, and nobody had come up to support them. They were much scattered, and as their officers were seeking to gather them together, the men in gray fell upon them in overpowering force, and drove them back in broken fragments. Wild with triumph, the southern riflemen rushed after them and also hurled back other riflemen who were coming up to their support. But on the plain they encountered the matchless northern artillery. A battery of sixteen heavy guns met their advancing line with a storm of canister, before which they were compelled to retreat, leaving many dead and wounded behind. Yet the entire Union attack on Jackson had been driven back. 
the northern troops suffering terrible losses. The watchers on the Phillips porch on the other side of the river saw the repulse, and again their hearts sank like lead. The watchers turned their field glasses anew to the southern center and left, where the battle raged with undiminished ferocity. Marie's Hill was a formidable position, and along its slope ran a heavy stone wall. Behind it, the southern sharpshooters were packed in thousands, and every battery was well placed. Hancock, following Burnside's orders, led the attack upon the ensanguined slopes. Forty thousand men, almost the flower of the Union army, charged again and again up those awful slopes, and again and again they were hurled back. The top of the hill was a leaping mass of flame, and the stone wall was always crested with living fire. No troops ever showed greater courage as they returned after every repulse to the hopeless charge. At last they could go forward no longer. They had not made the slightest impression upon Marie's Hill, and the slopes were strewn with many thousands of their dead and wounded, including officers of all ranks from generals down. The Union army was now divided into two portions, each in the face of an insuperable task. But Burnside, burning with chagrin, was unwilling to draw off his army. The reserve troops left on the other side of the river were sent across, and fighting Joe Hooker was ordered to lead them to a new attack. Hooker, talking with Hancock, saw that it merely meant another slaughter, and sent such word to his commander-in-chief. But Burnside would not be moved from his purpose. The attack must be made, and Hooker, whose courage no one could question, still trying to prevent it, crossed the river himself, went to Burnside and remonstrated. Men who were present have told vivid stories of that scene at the Phillips house. Hooker, his face covered with dust and sweat, galloping up, leaping from his horse, and rushing to Burnside, the commander-in-chief striding up and down, looking toward Marie's Hill, enveloped in smoke, and repeating to himself, as if he were scarcely conscious of what he was saying, That height must be taken. That height must be taken. We must take it. He turned to Hooker with the same words. That height must be taken today, repeating it over and over again, changing the words perhaps, but not the sense. The gallant but unfortunate man had not wanted to be commander-in-chief, foreseeing his own inadequacy. And now in his agony, at seeing so many men fall in vain, he was scarcely responsible. Hooker, his heart full of despair, but resolved to obey, galloped back and prepared for the last desperate charge up Marie's Hill. The advancing mists in the east were showing that the short winter day would soon draw to a close. He planted his batteries and opened a heavy fire, intending to batter down the stone wall but the wall, supported by an earthwork, did not give, and Longstreet's riflemen lay behind it, waiting. At a signal, the Union cannon ceased firing, and the bugles blew the charge. The Union brigades swarmed forward and then rushed up the slopes. The volume of fire poured upon them, 
was unequaled until Pickett led the matchless charge at Gettysburg. Pickett himself was here among the defenders, having just been sent to help the men on Marie's Hill. Up went men through the winter twilight, lighted now by the blaze of so many cannon, and rifles pouring down upon them a storm of lead and steel, through which no human beings could pass. They came near to the stone wall, but as their lines were now melting away like snow before the sun, they were compelled to yield and retreat again down the slopes, which were strode already with the bodies of so many of those who had gone up in the other attacks. Every charge had broken in vain on the fronts of Jackson and Longstreet, and the Union losses were appalling. Harry knew that the battle was won, and that it had been won more easily than any of the other great battles that he had seen. He wondered what Jackson would do. Would he follow up the grand division of Franklin that he had defeated, and that which still lay in front of them? But he ceased to ask the question, because when the last charge, shattered to pieces, rolled back down Marie's Hill, the magnificent northern artillery seemed to Harry to go mad. The thirty guns of the heaviest weight that had been left on Stafford Heights, and who which had ceased firing only when the northern men charged, now reopened in a perfect excess of fury. Harry believed that they must be throwing tons of metal every minute. Nor was Franklin slack, hovering with his great division in the plain below, and knowing that he was beaten, he nevertheless turned one hundred and sixteen cannons that he carried with him upon Jackson's front and swept all the woods and ridges everywhere. The Union army was beaten because it had undertaken the impossible. But despite its immense losses, it was still superior in numbers to Lee's force. And above it all, it had that matchless artillery which in defeat could protect the Union army and which in victory helped it to win. Now all these mighty cannon were turned loose in one huge effort. Along the vast battle front and from both sides of the river they roared and crashed defiance, and the army of the Potomac, which had wasted so much valor, crept back under the shelter of that thundering line of fire. It had much to regret but nothing of which to be ashamed. Sent against positions impregnable, which were held by such men as Lee, Jackson, and Longstreet, it had never ceased to attack so long as the faintest chance remained. Its commander had been unequal to the task, but the long roll of generals under him had shown unsurpassed courage and daring. Harry thought once that General Jackson was going to attack in turn. But after a long look at the roaring plain, he shrugged his shoulders and gave no orders. The beaten army of the Potomac preserved its order. It had lost no guns. The brigadiers and major generals were full of courage, and it was too formidable to be attacked. Three hundred cannon of the first class on either side of the river were roaring and crashing and the moment the southern troops emerged for the charge, all would be sure to pour upon them a fire that no troop could withstand. 
General Lee presently appeared riding along the line. The cheers which always rose where he came rolled far, and he was compelled to lift his hat more than once. He conferred with Jackson, and the two, going toward the left, met Longstreet, with whom they also talked. Then they separated, and Jackson returned to his own position. Harry, who had followed his general at the proper distance, never heard what they said, but he believed that they had discussed the possibility of a night attack, and then had decided in the negative. When Jackson returned to his own force, the twilight was thickening into night, and as darkness sank over the field, the appalling fire of the Union artillery ceased. Thirteen thousand dead or wounded Union soldiers had fallen, and the Southern loss was much less than half. All of Harry's comrades and friends had escaped this battle uninjured, yet many of them believed that another battle would be fought on the morrow. Harry, however, was not one of these. He remembered some words that had been spoken by Jackson in his presence. We can defeat the enemy here at Fredericksburg, but we cannot destroy him, because he will escape over his bridges while we are unable to follow. Nevertheless, the young men and boys were exultant. They did not look so far ahead as Jackson, and they had never before won so great a victory with so little loss. Harry, sent on a message beyond Deep Run, found the Invincibles, cooking their suppers on a spot that they had held throughout the day. They had several cheerful fires burning, and they saluted Harry gladly. "'A great victory, Harry,' said Happy Tom. "'Yes, a great victory,' interrupted Colonel Leonidas Talbot. "'But, my friends, what else could you have expected? "'They walked straight into our trap. "'But I have learned this day to have a deep respect for the valor of the Yankees.' The way they charged up Marie's Hill in the face of certain death was worthy of the finest troops that South Carolina herself ever produced. Well, that's saying a great deal, Leonidas, said Lieutenant Colonel Hector St. Hilier, but it is true. Harry talked a little with the two colonels, and also with Langdon and St. Clair. Then he returned to his own headquarters. Both armies making ready for battle tomorrow, if it should come, slept on their arms, while the dead and wounded yet lay thick in the forest and on the slopes and plain. But Harry was not among those who slept, at least not until after midnight. He and Dalton sat at the door of Jackson's tent, awaiting possible orders. Jackson knew that Burnside, with a hundred thousand men yet in line and no artillery loss, was planning another attack on the morrow, despite his frightful losses of the day. The news of it had been sent to him by Lee, and Lee in turn had learned it from a captured orderly bearing Burnside's dispatches. But neither Harry nor Dalton knew anything of Burnside's plans. They were merely waiting for an errand upon which Jackson should choose to send them. Several other staff officers were present, and as Jackson wrote his orders, he gave them in turn to be taken to those for whom they were intended. Harry, after three such trips of his own, 
sat down again near the door of the tent and watched his great leader. Jackson sat at a little table on a cane-bottomed chair, and he wrote by the light of a single candle. His clothing was all awry, and he had tossed away the gold-braided cap. His face was worn and drawn, but his eyes showed no signs of weariness. The body might have been weak, but the spirit of Jackson was never stronger. Harry knew that Jackson, after victory, wasted no time exulting, but was always preparing for the next battle. The soldiers, both in his own division and elsewhere, were awakened by turns, and willing thousands strengthened the southern position. More and deeper trenches were constructed, new abatis were built, and the stone wall was strengthened yet further. Formidable as the southern line had been today, Burnside would find it more so on the morrow. After midnight, Jackson, still in his gorgeous uniform and with his boots and spurs on too, lay down on his bed and slept for about three hours. Then he aroused himself, lighted his candle, and wrote an hour longer. Then he went to the bedside of the dying Greg and sat a while with him, the staff remaining at a respectful distance. When they rode back, they were mounted again. They passed along the battle front, and the sadness which was so apparent on Jackson's face affected them. It was far toward morning now, and the enemy was lighting his fires on the plain below. The dead lay where they had fallen, and no help had yet been given to those wounded too seriously to move. It had been a tremendous holocaust, and with no result. Harry knew now that the North would never cease to fight disunion. The South could win separation only at the price of practical annihilation for both. The night was very raw and chill and not less so now that morning was approaching. The mists and fogs, which, as usual, rose from the Rappahannock, made Harry shiver at their touch. In the hollows of the ridges, which the wintry sun seldom reached, great masses of ice were packed, and the plain below, cut up the day before by wheels and hooves and footsteps, was now like a frozen field of ploughed land. The staff heard enough through the fogs and mists to know that the Army of the Potomac was awake and stirring. The southern army also arose, lighted its fires, cooked and ate its food, and waited for the enemy. Before it was yet light, Harry, on a message to Stuart, rode to the top of Prospect Hill with him, and they sat there on their horses. The sun cleared away the fog and mist, and they saw the Army of the Potomac, drawn up in line of battle, defiant and challenging, ready to attack or be attacked. Harry felt a thrill of admiration that he did not wish to check. After all, the Yankees were their own people, bone of their bone, and their courage must be admired. The Army of the Potomac, too, was learning to fight without able chiefs. The young colonels and majors and captains could lead them, and they were there, after their most terrible defeat, grim and ready. The lion's wounded, but he isn't dead by any means, said Harry to Stuart, 
Not by a great deal, said Stuart. There was much hot firing by skirmishers that day and artillery duels at long range. But the northern army, which had fortified on the plain, would not come out of its entrenchments, and the southern soldiers also stuck to theirs. Burnside, who had crossed the river to join his men, had been persuaded at last that a second attack was bound to end like the first. The next day Burnside sent in a flag of truce, and they buried the dead. The following night Harry, wrapped to his eyes in his great cloak, stood upon Prospect Hill and watched one of the fiercest storms that he had ever seen rage up and down the valley of the Rappahannock. Many of the southern pickets were driven to shelter, while the whole southern army sought protection from the deluge. The army of the Potomac, still a hundred thousand strong and carrying all its guns, marched in perfect order over the six bridges that it had built, breaking the bridges down behind it and camping in safety on the other side. The river was rising fast under the tremendous rain, and the southern army could find no fords, even though it marched far up the stream. Fredericksburg was won, but the two armies, resolute and defiant, gathered themselves anew for other battles, as great or greater. End of chapter 5, part 2 Recording by Michael Packard.